This is a question and answer session with Joel titled Gnosis and Dreaming, recorded July 19th, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, are there any questions this morning? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just finished Dr. Wolf's uh, book. So I wondered if you could maybe illuminate more the path of knowledge as, as compared to maybe with the path of love and talk specifically about some of the practices and techniques that he used or recommended, like some of the thinking that he that he emptied himself of, maybe some of the thinking he retained, and and uh, what what do you, what more he meant by isolated the subjective moment. Mm. Which book did you just finish? Uh, Pathways. Pathways. Dr. Wolf talks about the path of knowledge as being a specific path, and this comes from a traditional way of viewing paths in India, and that is that there are four major paths. One is called Janana, that's the path of knowledge. Then there's uh, karma, which we would translate as sort of the path of service. Um, there's bhakti, which is the path of uh, devotion. Uh, and then there's dhyana, which is the path of meditation. Um, all four are mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita. Traditionally, sometimes you only think, you don't think of dhyana as actually a path, but as a practice that supports all the paths. But in any case, these are four sorts of um, concrete practices you can do. Uh, so what uh, distinguishes uh, Janana, the path of knowledge? Uh, and this is very brief and, and sketchy. Uh, but you could look at it this way, that there are actually only two, uh, or the, these, two these four paths resolve into two major tracks. One is knowledge and the other is love. Wisdom and compassion. Uh, and they actually work together. And everybody's path is a combination of these things, including Dr. Wolf's. It's a question of the emphasis. And in Dr. Wolf's case, the emphasis was very strongly on the wisdom side. There's a prerequisite for this, because these paths are suited to particular individuals, to what your uh, disposition is, your natural disposition and interests and so forth. Uh, if you are someone who has a quite a logical mind, and particularly someone who trusts logic and reason. Then the path of knowledge, or at least that accent, is very much for you. It requires, uh, the reason it requires this trust in reason and logic is because reason and logic will contradict your everyday experience of things. This is the whole history of science, by the way. This isn't just in spirituality, you know. Our, our uh, empirical experience, for instance, of the sun is that the sun goes around the earth. We look and it rises over there in the east and then, you know, in midday we see it up there and at the end of the day we see it over here and it's going down in the west. It's logic, it's science that tells us, no, this is a, an illusion. It's not really like that. It's very hard to believe that it's not really like that. Do you know, in Copernicus's day, when Copernicus first proposed in the modern uh, West that the sun would, was the center of the universe and that actually the earth was going around the sun and not the other way around, people didn't believe him 
And it wasn't initially because the church was against it. It made no sense. Do you know? It violated all their, their, their common sense experience. Not just the fact that you could look at it go around, but, uh, for instance, his theory required that the earth was spinning. And people in those days said, well, if the earth is spinning, it's like a potter's wheel. You know, if you put something in the edge of a potter's wheel and spin it, it flies right off. Why aren't people and, you know, animals and stuff just flying off the earth? It doesn't make any sense. It took a tremendous leap of faith to trust logic against over and above and against your common sense experience. Now, if you follow a path of knowledge, janana, in a strict sense, you are actually reasoning about how the world appears and what must be the case. You're following the reasoning, if you begin this, the reasoning of great mystical philosophers like Shankara, who was Dr. Wolf's guru. Shankara's been dead for anywhere from a thousand to, uh, or seventeen hundred to two thousand years. But nevertheless, uh, Dr. Wolf used to describe him as my guru. When he read Shankara, he was, uh, felt like he was almost actually in touch with Shankara. That he, when Shankara, when he read it, uh, Shankara spoke right to him. There was an intuitive link. Jack the Wolf wasn't just all reason. He used reason. So in following this, he became intellectually and rationally convinced that the mystics were right. Uh, So much so that he had no more intellectual or rational doubt. He didn't just read Shankara and get very impressed and then put it aside and, uh, and during the course of his normal day think, well, well, I don't know, that's some sort of screwy mystic from the East. Maybe, you know, I shouldn't take it seriously. He was convinced he should take it seriously through the power of reason. And the uh, it boiled down for him to this one very famous uh, slogan that runs throughout all uh, Indian spirituality, basically, or all monistic spirituality, uh, that the self is Brahman. Tatvam asi, that thou art. Which means that the uh, what you think of as yourself, as a limited, finite appearance is in fact actually the infinite, unlimited, unconditioned Brahman, the ground of all things, that consciousness in which the whole world constantly appears and disappears. Now, he became convinced that that was true intellectually. But of course, for a mystic, that's not enough. That doesn't actually release you from suffering and the fear of death and so forth. This is why in mysticism there's always a higher form of knowledge, which is what janana means, actually. It's not knowledge that is, um, comes by way of the senses, experiential knowledge, and it's not conceptual knowledge. There's a third form of knowledge. I shouldn't say form of knowledge. This is the third way of knowing. And it's often called the eye of wisdom. You can think of it as awakening this inner eye. Um, 
It's a kind of knowledge, uh, it's called realization. And the reason it's called realization is because the way you sometimes realize something is true. There's this aha, you just suddenly realize it, you know? Uh, recognition is the word that Dr. Wolf used quite often to uh, describe this. Uh, and this is, um, now actually, there's a, a kind of analogy to common experience, too, that you can use. Uh, if, for instance, you were walking down the street and somebody approached you, and you first looked at them and you thought, there's a stranger coming, maybe it's a dark alley late at night, and this person starts towards you, and maybe they look a little shabby, and maybe they're uh, a little bearded, and maybe there's actually fear. And they approach you, and they approach you, and they get to a certain distance, and suddenly you recognize them. You recognize. And you say, this is my friend from high school. Joe, how you doing? I didn't recognize you at first. You see? It has that quality of instant, uh, an instantaneous uh, knowing. It's not a step-by-step logical knowing. It's a leap. And the term recognition is very pertinent here because it is a recognizing. And another way it's often expressed in other mystical traditions is a remembering. Remembering who you really are. In uh, Plato uses this all the time. It's a question of remembering the truth about yourself. The truth that really you already know, but you have forgotten. Or it's been clouded. Another uh, famous or common analogy is to awaken. And just as you fall asleep and you uh, may identify with some dream figure, maybe uh, a condemned criminal who's about to be executed, we just saw a movie about uh, was well, she wasn't a condemned criminal. Uh, uh, Anne of a thousand days. Anne of uh, Lady Jane. That's who became uh, uh, Queen of England for nine days and then was beheaded. Maybe you fall asleep and you dream that you are Lady Jane, being led to the block. You've forgotten who you really are. You see, and there you are, being led to the block, and you're full of fear, and you wake up, and you. There's a sense of relief. Oh, I remember who I am. I'm not Lady Jane. Oh, it's just all a dream. So these are ways of trying to describe this uh, enlightenment, what enlightenment is, what janana is. That's the technical Hindu name for it. I call it gnosis. Gnosis and janana are etymologically related. Janana's spelled J-N-A-N-A, and Gnosis is G-N-O-S-I-S, and the J-N-A and the G-N-O have the same Sanskrit root or Indo-European root. So when he had gotten to the point of being convinced intellectually that uh, this was true, then it was a question of really uh, concentrating on this and examining it and using, uh, trying to use his mind in whatever way he could to realize this. So uh, Dr. Wolf did not have a formal meditation practice, uh, at least towards the end of his path, the way we do here. He didn't sit in a particular uh, cross-legged position and do uh, concentrate on his breath. 
By that time, his powers of concentration were so strong, he didn't need to. But he would go off into the wilderness and take along his chakra, and he would read it and ponder it and contemplate it. Alone. He was uh, uh, a great outdoorsman. And he would let his mind uh, work on this. And he would come to deeper and deeper insights that now became what he described as noetic insights. That they were, uh, they had this quality about them that was more than just a rational conviction, but they had an intuitive uh, side to it, an intuitive depth to it. And finally, he realized uh, several little things, but the, the one that you mentioned was that all the time he had been searching for this truth, this Brahman, and he had been expecting to find some object in consciousness that wasn't there before. And we do this in our meditation, by the way. Anytime any of you are meditating and you expect to arrive at some state that you've never been in before, or some new object's going to be there, or you want to have a vision, or maybe, you're looking for something out there. And he realized, wait a minute, the self that I really am can never be an object in front of consciousness. Niels Bohr, the one of the founders of quantum mechanics, uh, got very interested in a little book called The Danish Student. I think that's how you translate it into English. The most important philosophical book in his life. Nobody else ever heard of it. And it was about a Danish student who decided to find out who he was. And every time he thought that he could see himself, he realized, oh, there was somebody looking at that. So he'd sit down and he'd think about himself and he'd think about his history, for instance, what school he went to and, uh, I don't know, the girlfriends he had and so forth. And he'd think, oh, and he had this image. That's who I am. And then he realized, no, there's, who's, who's looking at that image? So he'd try and step back farther and farther and farther, you see, get more and more subtle. But his self is never going to be an object in front of consciousness. The self is always what's watching all the objects in front of consciousness. So when he realized that, then he realized I'm, uh, it's not any object in front of consciousness. And then he describes it as uh, attention turning back on itself. And this is also uh, very, uh, you find these descriptions uh, in other mystical traditions. And then there was uh, there were a couple of noetic uh, realizations he went through that I don't want to go into now because it would be too much of a digression. But his final, uh, very final realization or breakthrough uh, insight, I should say, before his, his recognition, was that he was already that which he was seeking. Therefore, give up the search. The, the uh, Indian slogan, that thou art, is not that thou can become. It's that thou art. You are already Brahman. And so he realized all this searching, 24 years on the path, he was searching for what he already was. There was... There was no way to become more what he was. And this insight 
then said, uh, the second part of it said, therefore, give up the search. Stop looking. Cease. Spontaneously in him, all effort stops. Now, you can't just decide this. I mean, stop searching means stop searching for anything. And he said uh, that he expected nothing from, I mean, this was just sort of the end of the line. This was just the truth, the way things were. He didn't expect anything particularly to happen. And he said in the next moment, oh, and then he said it was like a leap into nothing. Because there was nothing to do. All searching had stopped. And the next moment, as he described it, that nothing became an infinite fullness. So this is his path of Janana anyway. It varies with different people. This is how it worked. But what he was pursuing was, first, a, uh, a logic. What is the truth? What is reality? And he had his bhakti, his devotion, was an intellectual passion. It wasn't that he didn't have bhakti and he didn't have devotion, but that was channeled into this very uh, uh, focused search for a very particular sort of truth. He trusted reason uh, completely. If something was not reasonable and rational, he was not going to believe it. He didn't care what his senses told him. If it was not rational that uh, the sun uh, went around the earth, he would have gone with Copernicus back then. He, Copernicus, Copernicus could have showed it to him mathematically, and he said, yes, Copernicus is right. I don't care what the senses tell you. The senses must be wrong very powerful for a spiritual path because of course this is what all mystics tell us that somehow it's not that our experience is false it's the way we interpret our experience that's false we see something and we think it's a snake and it, but in truth it's only a coiled piece of rope we've mis uh, we've mistaken what we see what we hear what we think so logic and, and rationality can be a very, very powerful tool if you have that sort of dedication to it and if you trust it the way he did. That can carry you right up to the gate. It cannot uh, throw open the gate. It can carry you to the doorstep. And then there's a jumping off point. That last little leap is grace. It's spontaneous. Is that uh, helpful as an answer? Speak a little bit about spirit is. Spirit? Yeah. Spirit's a word that's uh, actually sort of died out of our language in the last couple hundred years of English. Uh, it used to be a very common word. It goes back to, uh, I believe, breath was the, the root of it, the idea of uh, and associated with the breath. Uh, and it was a word all through Christianity, the Middle Ages, uh, uh, was, of course, very common. Um, and the primary thing about spirit was that it was not corporal. It was not matter. It was a contrast to material things. There was uh, corporal reality and there was spiritual reality. There was material reality and spiritual reality. 
So it was uh, it designated something that it didn't have uh, sensory qualities. Touch, sight, sound, smell, taste. Another dimension to reality that was not accessible through the senses. At least not directly through the senses. But still could be uh, accessed. Partly through reason, by the way. Through the intellect. The, the medieval Christians uh, valued intellect very highly. And also uh, through uh, uh, the eye of contemplation. I believe it was uh, Bonaventure before him, maybe even uh, there was one mystic before him, I think, who established this. But there was this idea of there were three eyes, the eye of the flesh, the eye of the mind, and the eye of contemplation. Three ways of knowing things. Yes? Are we speaking of eye as identity? or eye No, eye, eye, the eye here is E-Y-E. So you could know things through the flesh, you could know things through the mind, and then there was this other eye, the eye of contemplation, the eye of prajna, the Buddhists would say, the, the, the wisdom eye that is awakened. But the uh, And this is the eye where you really understood spirit. You could approach it through the intellect. Now, so it's a very common word, all uh, medieval philosophy, all uh, religious philosophy, spiritual philosophy in the West, uh, you couldn't conduct that philosophy without the word spirit. When uh, uh, the old medieval paradigm started to uh, break down, and when this new uh, materialist paradigm came along, and people got very skeptical and uh, became uh, started to see the world just in terms of matter, the word spirit started to be useless in science, in philosophy, I think I've mentioned this before, but one of the uh, tests that the materialists did to determine if there was a spirit, a personal spirit, a soul, was to uh, weigh a body just before it died. Somebody's just dying, weigh them, and then as soon as, right after they died, weigh them again and see if there was any weight differential. Because the idea was, if the spirit had, had left their body, then there should be a weight, the body should be a little lighter. Of course, this is very naive because it mistakes something spiritual with something corporal. How could the spirit have any weight? But in any case, this was one of the ways that materialists in the early days were proving that there was nothing to this uh, to spirituality. The term spirit, uh, so the term spirit really dropped out of the language, unless you are still a Christian, uh, but uh, or unless you're a poet or something like that. It, our materialist culture gives it a certain status, a poetic status. It's nice. You know, we talk about the spirit of man uh, or, you know, whatever, the human spirit, the striving of the human spirit. That's all great. Humanists talk about that, but they don't really mean this in anything more than just a poetic kind of way. Is there a dimension to reality that is non-material, that does not appear to the senses? Now, oddly enough, just getting rid of the word spirit didn't do it because human beings, need, uh, human beings need some word that designates this. And our word today is consciousness. It's, it's very interesting what happened with the change from the old uh, paradigm of Christendom to the materialist paradigm. The materialists wanted to get rid of a lot of things uh, just by uh, sort of uh, legislating them out of the language. We're not going to talk about spirit anymore. We're not going to talk about sin anymore. 
but you get you get rid of sin. But now we talk about guilt and guilt complexes, and uh, uh, you know the whole Freudian thing. You you cannot get rid of people's actual inner experience just by getting rid of the words. They'll come up with other words to talk about these things. Our word today, consciousness, has the same qualities, fulfills the same function that the word spirit did in the Middle Ages. It refers to something that is not material. Now, materialist philosophers think that consciousness is some sort of epiphenomena of matter, and they've never been able to explain how matter creates this epiphenomena. But the meaning of the term is that dimension of our lives that isn't uh, physical. Now, how has spirit's been used, or how consciousness has been used, or how soul has been used, or any of those words throughout different traditions um, is another story. And that's a wide-ranging subject, but keep just keep this in mind. Sometimes spirit, soul, uh, consciousness uh, is used in a limited sense. And sometimes it's used in the sense of the ultimate Brahman, the ultimate God. God in medieval Christendom is pure spirit. Brahman is often described as pure consciousness. That's the translation from the Sanskrit. Same thing. But there's also this idea, and it's always been this idea, that there is, uh, there's an individual soul. In, in uh, Sanskrit, it's a jiva, locked in a body. Or maybe two or three souls in some cultures. And so uh, the, the problem then is stated in terms of how to free this spirit, this soul locked in a body. There isn't actually any soul locked in a body from a mystic's point of view, either east or west. This is our delusion that there is a soul locked in a body. And I like to think of a soul, and I think it's a useful term, I wouldn't want to just get rid of it. But a soul, the soul is that window that if you go inward deep enough, you find there is a window, or let me put it this way, the, the frame, the window frame to the infinite ultimate consciousness. And so just as, just as we might say the eyes uh, and the senses are a window outward, and I'm just speaking now relatively here, there is an inner window, and that is the soul. And this is why uh, people often use these metaphors, going inward and finding a light, an inward light, that sort of streams through this window. And so you can, it's a very useful word if you think of it that way. You follow that inner light. You look for your soul, your true self. And when you get there, you'll find, just like a window, there's, there's nothing in the window. That's the whole point of a window. It's open, it's transparent, it's clear. It leads out to the great world out there. The whole function of a window is to be nothing, in that sense. As, as the Tao Te Ching says it very well, the function of a cup is to be empty. So she can put things in it. You wouldn't have, wouldn't have any point to a, a, a solid cup. It's got to be an empty cup. That's what makes it useful. 
So we want to still think of spirit, someone's spirit or their soul, or think of it that way. We could even speak of relative consciousness. I don't like it too much because I like to keep consciousness ambiguous. But you could talk about self-consciousness, relative consciousness. Dr. Wolf does. Think of it that way. Think of it as an inner eye that opens inwardly, and that inward, that inward opening eventually circles back around, you know, sort of like Einstein's space, and is, encompasses everything, even the outward. This is the way mystics have used these concepts, soul, jiva, uh, spirit, when it's, when it's used in a limited sense. You have a sense of it. You have a, uh, you trust that intuition. It's a good intuition. But go find it now. St. Teresa of Avila begins uh, Interior Castles, one of the most famous uh, uh, studies of uh, the, the spiritual path from a Christian point of view, saying how shameful it is that we don't know anything about our own souls. We don't truly know. We've heard in church, she's writing in the 16th century, we've heard in church about it, but we have not bothered to go look to find our own souls. And she says, it would be just like if you uh, didn't know who you were, who your parents were, what town you came from, or anything like that. And you had no interest in all that. And so this is, a, this is the beginning of the path. Who are you? Put it that way. What is this soul you have? She says most people have no idea of this tremendously precious, uh, I've forgotten her exact words, but uh, we could say treasure hidden in them that God fashioned. And so her whole challenge is go find it. And when you find out what God fashioned, if we want to talk in those terms, is a window. So that God could look in and you could look out and actually so that as a, there isn't really a God looking in and a you looking out. There's just a looking going on. As the Sufis express it so beautifully. A Sufi, major Sufi practice is the remembrance of God. You remember God, you're remembering God, you're remembering God. And what you find at the end of the path, what you realize or recognize is that you aren't remembering God. God's remembering God. So that narrow definition of spirit or soul or consciousness turns out to be, in Gnosis, the infinite. What you started to look for thinking was uh, finite, turns out to be infinite. that helpful a little bit? Well, it's another definition from the contrast. I'm, I'm just using the definitions that are generally found in the mystical traditions. Uh, there certainly are great many definitions and ways of looking spirit, at spirit. Uh, but if you look through the mystical traditions, the various uh, words or equivalents, you'll find generally those are the way they're used. Where did the alcohol get associated with spirit? Ah, <laughs> um, you know, I, I did read something about that. Let's see if I can remember. Don't uh, you may have to double check me. I don't want, don't quote me on this. Um, 
but I think it was in at least from the uh, in the Western tradition, it was from the Greek period, and they believed that the um, the soul was in the chest, and uh, that there was a spirit. Their spirit was in the chest, and when you drank uh, wine, there was a spirit in the wine that went down and mixed with the spirit in the chest. So it was sort of like uh, uh, this, this was uh, there was no chemical understanding of how this worked, but it was happening on a spiritual level. You see that the spirit in the wine was getting mixed up with the spirit in your body, and that was causing all this confusion and you know whatnot, or happiness, or stumbling around, or whatever. But it was this this idea of uh, partly the placement of spirit, and partly the idea that there was a, you know that that what was in the wine was actually some sort of spirit. Like a little genie, you know, in, in gross terms. So wines are spirits. Now then, again, wine has been used in mystical traditions in, in many, many ways. Uh, if you read the Sufi traditions, and in Islam, wine is forbidden, uh, the Sufis write about, uh, their one of their biggest images in the Sufi poetry is about being drunk. And it's the wine of God. It's the uh, God intoxication. Ecstasy, spiritual ecstasy. And so... Uh, all through their poetry is uh, about the cupbearer and getting drunk and losing themselves and so forth. And of course, they scandalized the Orthodox uh, Muslims uh, because of this. Well, I think they kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> they had a real uh, rebellious streak. I think they liked to you know, pick images that they knew would light a fire under people. I had a question sure. about the fear of death mm -hmm. and the whole notion the notions of you know, reincarnation or even just a, eternal consciousness being eternal and uh, it just feels that even if these are true notions that to talk about them it's kind of cheating it in the sense that it solves the, the problem of fear of death by saying it doesn't exist instead of instead of ever getting around to Solving it, facing it, or something else. Your, um, your interpretation of reincarnation is exactly the Hindu and Buddhist interpretation. Uh, I've forgotten who said this, but some Buddhist or Hindu uh, who came to the West said, you know, you Westerners, you hear about reincarnation, and uh, to you it's a big relief. And you think, oh, I don't have to worry about what I do in this lifetime so much because I'm going to have many, many more lifetimes. And he says, that's not the import of the teaching in the East. The import of the teaching in the East is, it's something dreadful. You're going to have to go through this over and over and over. Uh, so in, you're right when you say it's cheating a little bit in a certain sense to think about reincarnation uh, if you take it as a... Um, uh, a consolation. Oh, I don't have to worry about things because I'm going to be reincarnated. Or if you take the uh, the Western teaching that um, there's eternal life, and many uh, fundamentalists and Orthodox uh, Christians or Muslims or, or Jews or whatever who uh, hear that there's eternal life, who take the teaching and believe it, are comforted. 
it's a kind of consolation. You don't have to worry about it too much. All you have to do is be a good little girl or boy and not do anything too terrible in this life. And, you know, death isn't the end and you don't quite know what's going to happen, but it's going to be okay. So that's a cop-out, too, in a certain sense, if you, if you use it that way. If you take these teachings as sort of a crutch, just as a consolation. Uh, it's helpful, by the way. I don't, when I say this, I, I don't mean to, to knock it. Uh, it's better, I think, to believe in that and to, and to have that sort of faith than not. There's, it creates less suffering. But if you want to uh, follow a mystical path, if you really want to get to the root of it, if you really want to deal with the fear of death, you're absolutely right. You have to confront death. You can't just believe in some paradise after death or some reincarnation. This is what's so important about realization or gnosis or recognition. It's through your own insight that you are relieved of the fear of death because you yourself know that death is not this final closing of the curtain as we perceive it to be. You don't have to believe a doctrine somebody else teaches you. Do you see what I mean? But in order to get there, you really must face death. You must face the impermanence of the whole world, including your own body. In many traditions, death is taken as uh, something to actually use as a, uh, a meditation object to contemplate. Brother Stendhal Rast, who's a Catholic, uh, uh, contemporary Catholic monk, who's very good, uh, a very, has a very mystical understanding of Catholicism and other traditions, uh, talked about a personal practice of his, that he put death on his forehead so that when he walks around, death is always with him. There are practices where you get up every morning and you think, this may be my last day on earth. So how am I going to lead my life? And it may well be, by the way. No one knows. You see what I mean? It's quite realistic. In uh, Tibetan practices, there's tremendous preparation for death. In, in, uh, in which you purposely... Uh, Try to recreate or to, to create in the imagination the experience of the body uh, falling away, emotions falling away, thought falling away. You're preparing for the moment of death because in the Tibetan tradition and in, in other traditions, the moment of death is a prime opportunity for this realization, for this gnosis we've been talking about. So I, I would say your instincts are, are dead right in terms of pursuing a mystical path. If you take doctrines about eternal life or reincarnation or whatever, and if you just take them at face value and don't investigate them, they will provide consolation and comfort in your life, but they will not actually uh, alleviate the fear of death. They will uh, ameliorate it. What is death is a huge mystery, and the, it's the other side of the coin of the mystery of what is life. If you're going to find out what life is, you're also going to find out what death is. If you're going to find out what death is, you'll also find out what life is.
So don't, don't be just satisfied with a teaching of reincarnation or eternal life. There's some uh, truth to that. That's a truth. That's a truth that's a, uh, truer than the materialist idea of death, but it's a stepping stone truth. What does etern- what would eternal life actually mean? What, what does eternity mean? Does it mean time going on and on and playing harps, you know, for hours and days and months? Or is eternity, like uh, Joseph Campbell said very nicely, uh, eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity isn't a soul, to get back to the idea of a soul or a spirit, existing in time endlessly, year after year, eon after eon. The, the, the bottom line truth of the world is that time itself is a kind of illusion. The eternal life of the soul is a life outside of time. Mystics who often talk about it as the eternal present, the eternal now. The investigation of death takes you into an investigation of time, for which a Janana Yoga would, uh, on, on which a Janana Yoga would spend a lot of time. What actually is time? So death is a very important topic in mystical traditions. And uh, if you're taking a mystical path, um, don't just be satisfied with a, a doctrinal teaching about death. Take that as something then to investigate more deeply, to really find out about. Yeah. Kind of on the same subject... Um... It's, I've, I've read many places that uh, you know, even to attain realization at the moment of death is, you know, of great benefit. Uh, could you speak from from the dualistic normal human perspective and also from the spiritual perspective? Uh, what is the benefit of realization at the moment of, of death? What is the what is the benefit of realization at the moment of death? I mean, what what good does it get to be uh, what, enlightened what, at death? What good does it do the one? What good does it do the deluge, deluded personality? Uh, well, first of all, realization is the end goal of all of life, from a mystic's point of view. I certainly uh, would say that, and. Any mystic would say that. So it doesn't matter when or where you get realized. You have realization. Anywhere, at any time, you know. And if you, if you have some idea of God realms and hell realms, well, that's fine too, you know. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. So anything that, um, any situation that, uh, that possibility, uh, becomes more probable is a, is a situation to, uh, look at in those terms to be valued. And death uh, is considered a, a primary um, or a situation in which the probabilities of realization are very high just because these other things, these distractions are stripped away. They're taken away from you. So uh, you could say that... Um, uh, there's less and less just nature, as the Tibetan says, cooperating with you. Nature's taking away all these distractions, leaving just this pure consciousness. And if you can realize that pure consciousness, that's it. 
how do we talk about this in terms of uh, why it's beneficial in a relative sense? It's a very difficult thing to do today because we don't have a paradigm, an adequate paradigm, uh, or way of talking about um, the continuity of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime. Which, by the way, is another advantage of having this idea of uh, reincarnation. It gives you a framework to talk about. I would say the best way that I could put it is this. There is a, regardless of whether you're enlightened or not, there is a continuity of consciousness. That's the reality of things. And it's like, it's as though uh, the consciousness is going from dream to dream to dream until it wakes up. And just as in one night, you might go from one dream to another dream to another dream. And in each dream, you will be a different person and a different world, a different situation. And that will all disappear. And then you'll have another dream. And you won't remember the, this dream that you just had. Do you see what I mean? You will continue dreaming until you wake up. Well, you could use this as a metaphor of our lives. If you don't wake up, quote, in this lifetime, you consciousness will continue dreaming. It won't be the same ego in that crude sense, you know, in the next dream, in the next dream. Uh, it may even be possible to remember past dreams. I never have. Uh, and I've never known of any situation where somebody's been able to remember, quote, a past lifetime and really been verified or whatever. That's probably unimportant. The important thing is this remembrance and sense of continuity that you have, uh, that consciousness has been dreaming before. Um, Heisenberg, who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, Werner Heisenberg. No, I'm sorry. It was Schrodinger, I think. One of the two, and I've forgotten which one. Either, either Heisenberg or Schrodinger. Um, wrote a wonderful little essay about this, and it's in a book we have in the library called Quantum Questions. And he was up in the Alps, and I think actually he was maybe teaching a class up there. He's speaking, I think maybe it's a lecture. And he's anyway, he's talking about being on a glacier. And he's talking about looking out over the uh, countryside, this vast, I don't know, it's a sunset or sunrise, this beautiful panorama landscape on the high in this glacier. And then realizing that you're not the first human being that's ever seen this from this spot. The generations and generations of human beings have climbed up to this spot and looked out over this uh, landscape. That our Paleolithic hunter ancestors uh, saw this. And then he says, and what makes you think that the eye who's seeing this now isn't the same eye that saw this then? The very same I. Now I'm using I with capital I, you know. What makes you think it isn't the same I? This is our delusion that it's not the same I. It is the same I. And now that I think about it, I'm almost sure this is Schrodinger. He was the Vedantist. So if you, uh, until there's realization, dreaming continues. One lifetime, another lifetime, doesn't matter. Realization puts an end to the uh, illusion that the dream is real. 
let me let me rephrase this. Until there's realization, the dream and the future dreams and all dreams are going to be taken to be absolutely real. And realization puts an end to the delusion that the dreams are absolutely real. And then the dreams are seen for what they truly are, which is the play of consciousness. Um, I realize this is very difficult stuff to get across, but okay, so it puts an end to the delusion, but whose delusion? And, uh, you know, the dream will continue, and, uh, you know, obviously there, or at least from a relative standpoint, there seems to be billions of dreamers continuing to dream, whether this dreamer happens to realize or not. How many dreams have you had in your lifetime? Uncountable in any. Okay. Have you ever been anybody aside from yourself as you appeared in a dream? Certainly. How many of those beings have you been? Uncountable. Okay. Do those beings exist? Well, you're asking me this. From a relative standpoint, it doesn't seem so. No. Okay. But in one sense, they do exist. You're going to go to sleep tonight. You might one of those beings might exist tonight, right? At the time, they seem to exist. Hmm? At the time, yes, they, they do. Exist. But none of them actually exist, do they? I mean, bottom line, reality it doesn't seem that way. Okay, that's a very good analogy. All these millions of beings that you think are continuing to dream, they aren't dreaming. They aren't there, ultimately. But they seem to be there. This is, this is why, ultimately, mysticism runs into paradox. This is why uh, logic can only take you to the doorstep. It'll run into a paradox that'll be insoluble, and the only way out of this paradox is as the uh, Zen masters talk about, uh, to get out. There's a wonderful little Zen koan about uh, a goose in a bottle. You take a bottle and you put a little gooseling in the bottle through the neck of the bottle when it will fit, and then you feed it. And the gooseling grows in the bottle, and so it's fat. And now it won't fit out the neck. And then the, the, the problem is, how do you get the goose out without breaking the bottle? Or killing the goose. Or killing the goose. Thank you. <laughs> now, has anybody who has not heard the answer to this uh, or read the answer in a book know the answer? The goose is out. That's no answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you have to find for yourself. Exactly right. That is no answer for you. It can't be. It, you're better off saying that's no answer than thinking it is the answer. And then you'll go tell all your friends, oh, I know the answer to life, the goose is out. But you won't really know, will you? There's another Zen story. I don't, I'll get back to this. There's another Zen story about a, um, uh, a monk who is, uh, came to a master and uh, heard that this master was enlightened and had this, had Zen, the truth of Zen. And he asked the master, uh, for the master's truth. As people often ask for the guru's grace or whatever. And the master said to him, uh, 
First of all, uh, I can't give you the truth, but if I could, I wouldn't. Because if I gave you uh, the truth, it would be my truth that you had. It wouldn't be your truth. So I'm not going to teach you anything. And the monk was uh, very upset about this and thought this is terrible and, and felt insulted and rejected and turned away and said, well, to hell with him. I'm going to find my truth myself. And he went off down the, the path to some lake and he built himself a meditation hut and he meditated for 10 years and he became enlightened. Now he found the truth for himself. And then he realized what a wonderful teacher he had had. <laughs> and so he built him a little temple by the lake. So we will get to this point if we continue this discussion. Uh, you originally asked the, uh, this question in a, from a dualistic relative point of view. I must say the best I can do is to use that analogy of the dreamer, the dreamer and the dreaming. And if you want to investigate, don't just be happy with it, but investigate what is the uh, status of a dream being within the dream. That's something to contemplate. It's very interesting, do you know? Real? Unreal. What sense real? Are there millions of deluded dreamers running around, each having their own little dream, their own little nightmare, their own little comedy, whatever the dreaming that's going on? Look in your own experience. How many, how many countless uh, dreamers have there been? How many countless worlds? But you can see from this analogy one thing. There's only one consciousness. Then why, when that consciousness wakes up, isn't it totally awake? Why are these little individuals... When you wake up, are you totally awake? <laughs> I don't know. Well, from a relative point of view. Uh, yes. Okay. And all the little dream dreamers are gone, but then I go to sleep again at night and do it all over again. Okay, supposing you wake up. Now, this is uh, a a more subtle uh, use of this analogy, it's not actually waking up in the sense that uh, this whole world vanishes in that sense. But supposing you woke up in the middle of the dream, and still dreaming, and realized, absolutely complete, oh, this is just a dream, how marvelous. Right? Mm -hmm. And you knew that the characters in the dream aren't really there, do you see what I mean? But they're all running around thinking they're in the dream. So you kind of let it go on, but you're watching it. Well, it's not a question of, yes, you could say let it go on. I, you, now we're getting off into the problem of will here, whose will is doing it. There's only one will. It's going on, let's just say for a moment. But let's say, let's say you woke up in one of your dreams. Let's say you and a friend of yours, you and Anne had been running from assassins in the dream, right? These uh, hatchet guys are coming after you to chop off your head. And you're running and running, and you're looking for places to hide, and you're like, how am I going to get out of this, and so forth. And you're trying all these things in the dream, and suddenly you wake up. And everything's marvelous now. Everything's beautiful in the dream, right? And, but Anne keeps saying to you, Bonnie, we got to run, hide, hide. And, and you start to say, wait a minute. Bonnie, don't you, uh, Anne, don't you realize... We're not really real. This is kind of a dream. And she says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell me all that mystical stuff. They're assassins trying to get us, you know? 
Now, what is her status in that? Is she real? No, but she is deluded. She thinks she's real. But so it's a unreal self that thinks it's real that's the problem. Now, supposing actually uh, you start to talk to a little bit and she gets intrigued by what you're saying. You know, first she thinks you're completely nuts. But after a while, she gets a little intrigued, and maybe she's heard about other characters uh, in, this, in this dream that have said similar sorts of things. And then she asks you to explain to her how this could be. And you can only say, look, Anne, you're a dream character. You're not real. And your delusion is that you think you're real, but you're, you know, you're not. So your problem is to wake up. Now, if she wakes up, there'll be no difference between her consciousness and your consciousness, right? There'll be one consciousness. Then you and Anne might go around through the dream telling other people, hey, listen, uh, you know, you'll meet other people who are, who are terrified of these assassins. And you'll say, hey, you wake up too. You play with this metaphor yourself. You'll see. It's uh, it's very intriguing. And a quick question. Sure. Um, another question about death. You you said before that suffering does not end with death. Can you kind of explain that? In well, let's stay with this analogy. Uh, In the dreams, in the dream, the deluded dream, suffering's inevitable. Not necessarily in your personal dreams that you have at night. Sometimes you have a, you know, just a delightful dream. Uh, but you could say that suffering is an, an inevitable in the, in the, uh, metaphorical dream of this life. It's inevitable because there's an attachment a striving to hang on to the dream substance, the, I mean, the dream forms that are constantly changing. So if you haven't awakened to the fact it's a dream, that, that uh, attempt to hang on will continue. So if you have another dream, that will be the same problem. Even though it's maybe a different character, you know what I mean? So the only, the only solution to the problem isn't a solution in the dream. It's just to realize it's a dream. And then it's okay that everything, uh, 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 dissolves. Then you wouldn't want it any other way. The play of it all is that it's all, uh, you know, like a dream. It's all changing constantly. It's a dance. You wouldn't want to run out to a dance floor and make everybody stop. You know, you'd ruin the dance. So the, the, uh, the suffering is the, the delusion that you are dreaming, which, which will be in, let's say, one night of dreaming. You'll have a dream, and whoever you are in that dream, you'll think it's real. The next night, I mean, the, the next, in the same night, you'll have another dream. You'll be somebody else, but you'll still think it's real. You'll, still, you'll think that dream is real. Do you see what I mean? And that dream is real. And then, in the dream, if you kept if your uh, uh, object in the dream was to not let this dream end, to hold on to it, 
each time, each dream would create suffering because it will end. So finally, when you realize, oh, I'm not actually any character in these dreams. I'm the consciousness in which all these dreams are appearing. And this consciousness doesn't have an end. Then the dreams come and go and it's perfectly okay. You're not trying to cling to something and make it stay put. Something that can't stay put in its very nature. So the severing continues uh, as long as there isn't realization. Which, by the way, goes back to your question, why, uh, what's the benefit of realization uh, at the moment of death? The benefit of realization is it puts an end to this suffering. Whether it happens between two dreams, you know what I mean? Just as one dream is vanishing before another dream comes, or in the midst of a dream, or who cares where it happens during the middle of the night where you wake up. But but uh, it's always, as one dream is really coming to an end, that's a good place to wake up. Actually, probably a lot, again, metaphorically, a lot like uh, you experience in this life, you know. The dream is coming to an end, and usually, if, unless an alarm clock's going off, you wake up, you know, more or less as a dream is petering out. When that happens, does, from a relative point of view, does the consciousness come back as a, as a mystic again? Or? Does consciousness come back as a mystic? Well, this is, this is in terms of a worldview uh, that includes the idea of reincarnation and so forth. And I don't want to get way off into that at this point. That's another big subject you it's very uh, you can think of it that way and you're not you're not way off it's you know what i mean it's again it's one of those teachings it's a stepping stone teaching it's very very valuable in certain traditions where uh the the uh quest for gnosis for realization for nirvana uh, has a has a strong personal and selfish element in it which it always does in the beginning anyway uh, this teaching then can be used uh, to turn that around, as it's done in Mahayana Buddhism, where the uh, the seeker takes a vow not to enter nirvana, uh, him or herself, finally, until all beings enter nirvana. Now, this is a this vow is very very strong in terms of a practice. It's strong because it's a very strong vow of selflessness, selfless action, uh, selfless service, love, and so forth. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't mean that it's reflecting a, an absolute reality. It's a useful teaching with a very powerful practice built into it. And which the Buddhists, the Mahayana Buddhists themselves know because in the Diamond Sutra, uh, Buddha tells, uh, one of his disciples, uh, it's true we take this vow to save all sentient beings. But if the truth were known, known, there are no sentient beings to be saved. Which comes back to our paradox we've been talking about before, you see. You realize it's all one being, and so there you are. So this, uh, you know, this... It's an expression of love rather than a literal truth 
this idea that mystics come back or that a consciousness come back consciousness comes back uh and you can uh, you could also uh, put it this way what it expresses is the love of consciousness for its dream there is it's certainly true that consciousness in this sense is love why is all this here look around you why is it all here Because consciousness is full of love and delight. Now I have to speak. You see, we get it breaks down and falls into analogy very quickly. But then I can say, I I create a dream, a marvelous, wonderful dream, colors and and uh, sounds and sights and everything. And then in the midst of it, I say, Oh well, wait a minute! You think this is real, and you're terrified now. Now look, see, it's just enjoy it with me. You see what I mean? Now this is already the idea that's behind, or this is what is being expressed, the idea of God and the soul, and the compassionate God reaching out to the soul. Do you see what I mean? The lost soul. So, you know, we all these wonderful ways of expressing this, some of them very uh, uh, poetic and graphic come up. You know, the soul and God and whatnot. They, they aren't, they're very useful. And they, they are real. They aren't the absolute truth, but they are true. They're truths to be used. If you start to feel a sense of love uh, coming from inside or permeating the world and so forth, and you want to express it in terms of this is God's love reaching out to me and embracing me or something, it's perfectly okay to think of it and, and express it to yourself that way. It's very useful to do that. Just don't take that as being a literal truth. Take it as a stepping stone. Take that as something to lead you. Do you see what I mean? All these truths, just remember that. All these teachings and all these truths are, are ways to, to lead, to help you. Signposts along the way. It's like, it's like there's this uh, mountainside. And these people have gone up this mountain, they found their way to the top, and they left markers along the way. Do you know what I mean? And nobody goes up exactly the same way somebody else did. But as you're making your way up the mountain, you come to these markers. Oh, yes, I know what this person means about God's love. I mean, I, I, I know it through experience. Do you see what I mean? Let me go higher now. If you sit at the bottom of the mountain and read maps that people brought down that says, you know, uh, half a mile up the trail, you run into God's love, and then another half mile here. What? And then you go around defending this map to everybody else who has a slightly different map because they've got one from somebody who came down the other side of the mountain. You know what I mean? And then you get in a big battle of who's got the right map, and you start burning each other and having inquisitions. You know, uh, silly. But treat it as a map. Treat these, you don't have to decide what's true or not in terms of the teachings in an absolute sense, you know? Use them. They're all to be used. On my path, when I, uh, when Athena entered my life, as those of you who read my book, in a dream, at first I was very bothered by was this real or not? I thought this was a very important question to decide because maybe my sanity hinged on it. Do you know what I mean? 
And then I realized, no, this was not a very important question to decide right now. That what I was about was to find out what was real. That if I knew right now what was real and what wasn't real, I wouldn't be on a spiritual path. So I suspended that uh, question. I took her for what she was in my life, the meaning she had, you see, and the value of the teachings I got. And I never decided whether she was real or not. And if people ask me today, well, was she real or not? Well, in one sense she was real, and in another sense she wasn't. Just the way, in one sense, this gong is real, and in another sense it isn't. I will tell you this, she was more real than this gong. But that's relative. Okay, let's call the formal part of the morning over, and you're welcome to stay and have tea.